0: This is a Radio.com original.
1: This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles.
2: And I'm Mike Simpson. Could the president's refusal to concede the election have life or death consequences during the pandemic? According to a group of hospitals, doctors and nurses, they are demanding the administration share the latest COVID data with the president-elect. Remember,
1: Sweden it's that country. Well, it's been used as both an example of everything to do right and wrong when it comes to managing the coronavirus. Turns out Sweden is in the same bad spot now as the rest of us.
2: There are growing worries that a record number of guns circulating around the country, combined with the stress we're under, could bring about a surge in suicides.
1: Plus, a person's trash says lots about their lifestyle, and our trash reflects... And how we've been living our lives at home lately.
2: Remdesivir got the emergency use authorization by the FDA. There's growing evidence it might not be that effective. That goes to a larger issue of approvals for all kinds of therapies.
1: Health officials pleading with Americans not to travel during the Thanksgiving holiday. But if you must, and if you must get on a plane, we have some tips on how to make sure COVID doesn't get off the plane with you. But let's first begin with COVID-19 data during this presidential transition period. It's been two weeks since Election Day, and there's still no meaningful communication or coordination between the Trump administration and the Biden transition team when it comes to the rapidly growing COVID outbreak. And the country's biggest medical associations have had enough.
2: Dr. Susan Bailey, immunologist, president of the American Medical Association. So the lack of communication between the outgoing and the incoming how critical is this?
3: The frontline healthcare workers in the American Medical Association, along with the American Hospital Association and the American Nurses Association, uh, wrote to the president this morning asking for the release of as much information as possible because we are in the midst of a terrible COVID surge twice as many people in the hospital now as there were six weeks ago. And we believe that information transfer about everything from PPE availability to the status of the strategic national stockpile and Operation Warp Speed, that information needs to be exchanged as quickly as possible, all hands on deck. Um, This continues to be an ongoing emergency and we need to be working together.
2: Do you think this is a matter of, you know, reading it over so you can be prepared to bounce off of it and keep running with it or look at what you want to change or need to change? Maybe I guess it's both.
3: Well, um, I knowledge is power, in my opinion. And I think that the more um, information that is shared uh, between, you know, our uh, national leaders, the better. Um, we think it's incredibly important that people still continue to wear masks, wash hands, keep their distance, and avoid small gatherings. Uh, But the fact of the matter is we've got vaccines coming online, we've got new therapeutics coming online, uh, and we have more and more people dying every day.
1: Um, Would you be dismayed if the days go by and we go from November into December and December turns into the beginnings of January and the level of cooperation still is not there? And then what?
3: Well, um, gosh, I hate to look in that crystal ball. Um, uh, all I know is is that we need to be acting quickly to try to bring down the level of this surge. Uh, I'm just very concerned that we are going to have unnecessary illnesses, unnecessary hospitalizations, uh, chronic diseases that come from having had COVID, heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, liver disease, uh, and then we'll end up with unnecessary deaths and unnecessary empty chairs at holiday tables unless we start all working together right now.
2: I guess if we're already strained, any chaos at the top when you need an answer fast, if you're trying to get one, is not going to be helpful come January, February, February.
3: Oh, it's so important that we really all pull together now to fight COVID vaccine. Um, There's some exciting, you know, information on the horizon about new vaccines and and therapeutics, but um, the communication is incredibly important regardless of what level it is, if it's from um, the highest levels of government or if it's just between a physician and a single patient talking about how to stay well.
2: Dr. Susan Bailey there, immunologist, president of the American Medical Association.
1: Sweden uh, didn't go for lockdowns and mask requirements throughout much of the pandemic. And depending on the rise and fall of their COVID infection rates, the country has been held up as either an example of the right or the wrong response. Well, 10 months into this, with the new surge of infections ripping through Sweden, the country is looking pretty much like the rest of us right now.
2: Dr. Peter Kasson teaches molecular physiology at the University of Virginia School of Medicine, also a lecturer at Uppsala University in Sweden. So, what's happening over there in Sweden?
0: What's happening right now is we're seeing a, a near exponential rise in cases, and the healthcare system is, as in many other hard hit areas, very close to being overwhelmed. And um, people are very concerned.
2: Remind us how things were. They never went to total lockdown. Their group gatherings were allowed, I think, up to a limit that to us would seem strange, like 50 or so. Um, They told people, you know, don't go out as much, but it was kind of on your own accord, right? Do as well as you can.
0: Yeah, the the approaches have been um, up to this point entirely recommendation based and rather than requirements and most of those recommendations have been relatively lax um, by uh, most international standards uh, focusing on distance and on washing your hands Um, i think some of the critics of this policy have said it's it's the best science as of march and maybe hasn't caught up with what we've learned since then
1: but you know i i I do Recall that that one of the gentlemen that we had on from Sweden uh, in the beginning of this, he basically said that at, at the end of the day, when the pandemic eventually leaves us, whether it's through natural herd immunity, vaccinated herd immunity, whatever, that everyone is going to end up pretty much in the same place, no matter what they ended up doing. Do you think that that is what's eventually happening
0: no i think that's that's a i i find it's a disappointing cynicism um the the political analogy um i would draw to that is is a little bit what uh, vladimir putin argues that all governments are corrupt and so don't worry if your government's corrupt uh because we're all lying to you and and i think we should hold ourselves to higher standards (laughs) and 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 i think you know places like um you know, Australia and New Zealand and South Korea are not perfect, but they're they're doing pretty well. If you look around Europe, you see that there are a lot of different ways to get this wrong, unfortunately. Um, and and some countries, Sweden, Scandinavian neighbors are doing between two and tenfold better than Sweden right now. Um, you know, but there are problems in a lot of Europe and there are problems in different parts of Europe for different reasons. Um, you know, the other thing is, as we start to look at a vaccine, it's every month that people don't get sick are, those are people who might not get sick because they could get the vaccine. And, and I think then sticking it out becomes really important.
2: So what are they doing now? Cause the so, prime minister has, has started to limit things, but they still don't believe in, in closing up a lot of shops.
0: Yeah, so what they're doing now, uh, the one requirement now is, well, as of November 24th, so in a week, um, public gatherings will be limited to eight people. Um, Private gatherings are advised to be limited to eight people, but there are no requirements. Um, Everything else is advisory. And um, because the regions, sort of like the counties in Sweden, are the ones who are actually responsible for the hospitals they're very concerned. And under pressure, the public health agency has allowed the regions to enact stricter recommendations. And so some of those regions, for instance, Skona near Copenhagen um, in the south is advising, not requiring, um, that people stay off public transport and work from home uh, when possible and avoid physical contact uh, with people who they don't live with. Um, and so some of these regions are, are advising more and more, um, there are no broad requirements. And still, um, everyone's, at least in terms of public health recommendations, everyone's been staying away from masks. There was a little change today um, when some of the opposition politicians said the government really needs to explain itself if it doesn't believe in masks to, to really say why.
4: All
2: right, I- talk to you.
1: Uh, I had one quick oh, really right, quick ahead. yeah just one quick question I'm just curious yeah. uh, do you feel more comfortable in Virginia or would you feel com- <laughs> more comfortable now in Sweden
0: right now um, I think in 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 Virginia um, I would say the the thing in Sweden is despite all this um, when I talk to different people different employers and different working groups around the country some people are taking, precautions that are very similar to the healthcare systems I talked to in Virginia, uh, where uh, people who can work from home work from home, they have masks available, they have distancing protocols. Um, so some is very similar, and some is very different. Everyone's coming into work, and it's just wash your hands. And so there's tremendous variability.
2: All right. Dr. Peter Kassin teaches molecular physiology at the University of Virginia School of Medicine, also lecture at Uppsala University there in Sweden.
1: There were already a massive amount of firearms owned by Americans before 2020, but the pandemic, a bitter presidential election and months of social unrest pushed gun sales to new records, all during a mental health crisis with more people than ever describing themselves as stressed and depressed.
2: Jennifer Stuber, director and co-founder of the Forefront Suicide Prevention Center at the University of Washington. So, Jennifer, have we seen the rates change? Maybe it's too early to tell, but your level of concern here.
5: Yeah, well, thanks for having me on your show today. I really appreciate it. Um, I think and for shining a light on this critical issue, what I can tell you is, is that it's still a bit too early to tell in terms of the rates increasing in terms of suicide, although we're seeing rates of opioid overdose um, increasing, but what we see is a lot of indicators that would basically Indicate that we should be definitely preparing to prevent suicide um, in a major way. Because again, as you mentioned, gun sales are up. Gun sales don't guns don't cause suicide, but when you have someone who's in a mental health crisis and they have easy access to fi- to a firearm, that can be a, a bad recipe. Um, we know that people are you know, the data suggests that there are more people calling the suicide prevention hotline, using the text line, that there are more people with severe anxiety and stress. So these are all the ingredients for a perfect storm. But why it's so important to have me on the show today is that we can talk about ways in which um, this doesn't have to be a foregone conclusion.
1: Um, and and we- you and you anticipated uh, the question I was just about to to throw at you, which is, so we have all of these indicators, so we kind of suspect that the weeks and months ahead might lead to a dire situation. So what can be done to head that off?
5: Yeah. So what can be done? I mean, the first and foremost, what can be done about that is we need to take a renewed focus. I think all of us, that first three months of the lockdown, we're probably all about like self-care and building community and connecting with those we care about and checking in on those that we're worried about. And I think, I I suspect in addition to the fatigue that we're all experiencing related to the pandemic and the lockdown, we're also experiencing that fatigue around taking care of ourselves and others in the way that perhaps we were in the beginning. And I think we gotta get back to that place um, of of again, especially checking in with those that we're concerned about um, any signs um, that might worry you such as a, a change in behavior, like not going from being someone who doesn't sleep a lot to um, suddenly sleeping a lot more or vice versa, somebody who um, has changed their diet dramatically, um, somebody who is a lot more stressed and keyed up or very withdrawn or speaking about being a burden, those kinds of things. Like when you've got someone in, in this place, it's really, really critical to build connection, to let them know that you have their back. And yes, to work with them to remove, to ask them difficult questions like, are their feelings so tough right now that they're actually considering suicide it's a time where you can actually ask that question with as, without as much stigma perhaps um because it, i mean everyone is going through this mental health struggle but asking that question are you thinking about killing yourself is really important and letting that person know you have their back and part of having their back is if you're in a position to hold on to firearms to um, help someone dispense medications to to really play a key role in kind of basically putting time and distance between those dangerous thoughts and means that people can use to kill themselves.
2: And I guess it's that realization that, yeah, it's impacting all of us in one way or another. I don't think there's anybody who's totally escaped something over the last nine months, Mm -hmm. right? Some sort of stress or feeling more down than you used to be. Mm
5: It's been a pylon. Let's just face it. It's been a pylon no matter where, you're, where what vantage point you sit in. And so if there's any silver lining to all of this, we need to understand that this is the time to destigmatize mental health and get talking to each other about how we're doing in terms of our mental health.
2: We always give the text line when we talk about things like this. So what is that for people to text?
5: It's 741-741-741. And then there's also the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1 800 273 8255.
2: Jennifer Stuber, Director, Co founder, Forefront Suicide Prevention Center, University of Washington. What's
1: in your garbage says lots about how you live. So goes the saying after nearly 10 months of an ongoing pandemic, what does your trash say about how you're living? Well, for one thing, your trash can is probably getting fuller faster with all of the time we're spending at home, while trash levels at bars, clubs, concert venues, and office buildings, of course, weigh down.
2: We don't often think about our trash, but like uh, so many elements of our society, trash is changing in 2020. David Biederman, CEO, Executive Director of the Solid Waste Association North America. So tell us
6: why the trash is changing. So the trash—it's not that the trash is changing. What's changing is where it's being generated, because businesses and schools and offices are closed. Uh, people are at home, and they're generating more waste in the residents in their homes, and much less waste in the business sector. Uh, and so. We're still generating the waste, which is doing it in different places.
2: So we're living at home more. We're getting more takeout. The salad box or the, let's face it, hamburger bag I used to get at work, I now have at home and my trash can fills up faster. What does that mean for everybody who's out there taking that trash and putting it somewhere?
6: Well, the sanitation industry, the waste collectors are really you know, demonstrating that they're an essential uh, service during the pandemic. Residential volume was up as high as 20, 25 percent above normal earlier this year. It's probably up about 10 percent now. And it, it's been stressful to the system to collect all this extra trash, manage the recyclables properly and get the job done. But the industry has done a great job so far.
1: Is there a a, uh, a different way of collecting trash now because of the concern, you know, how people are wiping things down and they get really aggressive about, you know, if they go shopping, they want to make sure everything is sterilized. Uh, By definition, trash isn't. But is there a different way now of having to collect it?
6: The trash is collected the same way, but the pandemic has provided us with an opportunity to message to the industry how important it is to wear gloves and to wear other personal protective equipment, it's a dangerous industry to begin with. There's, a, unfortunately, a lot of collisions, a lot of accidents. And the pandemic has provided an opportunity for us to make sure that the safety messages are getting to the front line. And we're very pleased to note that the number of fatal incidents this year is down compared to last year for the industry.
2: Can you recycle some of the PPE? I mean, are people throwing their disposable masks in the recycling bin and what happens to it then?
6: So that's a problem. Uh, those masks are not recyclable in curbside recycling programs. Unfortunately, the, the masks are, are made out of a material that just doesn't make it through the MRF into um, a plastic bale. And people should be treating those masks or the gloves that sometimes are being used. Those are really garbage and they need to be put in the trash. We're seeing a, a, an uptick in the volume of masks in our recycling facilities. And unfortunately, a lot of people are just tossing them on the ground. And we really don't want that kind of litter to start happening.
1: Has there been an issue in parts of the country with people who collect the trash perhaps being more apprehensive about doing it because of the pandemic?
6: Um, There was at the beginning of the pandemic when there was more unknowns about how it was transmitted. Some concern about getting it uh, getting exposed to the virus through the trash. Uh, The scientific data seems to indicate that the virus doesn't live in enough of uh, density to transmit to somebody who's picking up a garbage bag. Uh, We are telling our customers to always put everything in containers, in bags. We don't want a garbage collector, you know, coming and picking up loose trash and maybe there's something there that was used by somebody in the house an hour earlier and that person has COVID and doesn't even know it. So we always tell people to please make sure your trash is in a bag and is in a container.
2: How much does the average person generate each day?
6: So the average person generates too much trash. That's tongue-in-cheek there. Uh, Actually, the U.S. EPA just last week issued its most recent report on municipal solid waste. And Americans uh, generate nearly five pounds per person per day of municipal solid waste. Per day? We are very good at that. Yes. Wow.
2: Five pounds per day? That's a lot. All right. Uh, People, don't do that much. David Biederman, (laughs) CEO, Executive Director, Solid Waste Association of North America.
1: President Trump received the antiviral drug remdesivir as part of his treatment for COVID-19. He claimed it was almost a miracle drug for him, and the president quickly oversaw the FDA's emergency use authorization for remdesivir for COVID patients. But since then, the record on remdesivir's effectiveness to treat COVID-19 has been decidedly mixed, and the FDA's Rushed approval looks a little questionable.
2: Dr. Ravi Gupta, internist, national clinician scholar, University of Pennsylvania, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about this. Before the pandemic, a drug that uh, might be effective that wasn't always the standard, right?
7: Yeah. Well, first, I'd just like to say thank you for having me, and I'd also just like to acknowledge my uh, the other person, the other doctor that I wrote this with, Dr. Um Yeah. No, I think that's a great question, and that's sort of what we try to get at in our article. Um, You know, I I guess what's important to point out from the get go is that what we're advocating for is a stronger FDA. um, And we want the FDA not only to ensure that drugs like remdesivir are safe, but that they're also effective. And we want it to be, um, you know, we want to be more confident that it is effective. And we think that with remdesivir, it may have been a bit rushed in terms of the approval.
1: Well, and and I want to be clear for listeners, uh, you're not saying or are you? that remdesivir is, is not effective, uh, or are you?
7: No, so I, I think that's a great question. I think that the evidence is mixed. Um, but the one study that shows that it is effective show, showed that it reduced the length of hospitalization. So patients wouldn't necessarily need to be in the hospital as long if they'd been given remdesivir. But it hasn't been shown in multiple studies to reduce the risk of dying from COVID.
2: So with this and other things, when it comes to that, you know, emergency use authorization, emergency is in the title. So does that give it a little bit of leeway when you're looking at something? And and this is what they're doing, right? They're looking at things and they're trying to figure out what can work because we're not left with a lot of options right now. So some of this is rushed by necessity.
7: Absolutely. This is an unprecedented pandemic and I get it. Um, we, you know, all of the lives of my patients, my family members are at stake. And so we understand that there's also imperfect information. And if we have some options available, we should try to use them. Um, but we, we try to get at this in the article as well, which is to say that, you know, we also have been able to show that dexamethasone, which is a steroid that's been around for a long period of time, has been shown to be effective for patients that have COVID and are in the hospital. Um, And that this is more a conversation about where does the FDA end up after the pandemic? And we don't want its standards to show that a drug is safe and effective to be further eroded Um, when we're in a situation where we don't necessarily need the same level of speed that we need in a pandemic. Well,
1: of course, as you know, it's not just therapeutics that get emergency authorization from the FDA. Vaccines do, too. And Pfizer seems to be on the verge of submitting its application for an emergency authorization for its COVID vaccine. Moderna is expected to follow shortly thereafter. So in light of all the things that that you were just saying and what you uh, wrote in in your co-authored op-ed piece today, Should the public be somewhat leery of an emergency authorization from the FDA for a vaccine?
7: I think that's a good question, and I can understand, myself included, um, the need to have a vaccine. Um, But let me just say that You know, I, with respect to vaccines, I feel quite confident that the FDA has been taking and will continue to take the right steps in terms of ensuring a vaccine's safety and efficacy. Um, An emergency use authorization in a pandemic like this is entirely uh, reasonable. Um, And as long as the FDA continues to be transparent about it, which it said when it comes to vaccines, it will be. Um, You know, a couple of weeks ago, it held an advisory committee meeting where it leans on experts to help sift through the issues related to a vaccine emergency use authorization. Um, there's been news that it will have an additional advisory committee meeting in the next couple of weeks, uh, given that Pfizer and Moderna are uh, uh, have a vaccine in quite advanced stages. So as long as the FDA continues to be transparent, I think there's no reason to believe that a vaccine uh, won't be safe uh, and effective.
2: Dr. Robert Gupta, internist and national clinician scholar, University of Pennsylvania, has that op-ed in the New York Times looking for a strong FDA.
1: Health officials across the country urging people to stay put during the upcoming holidays, but that is not stopping many Americans. Travel surveys show millions are still planning to fly to their Thanksgiving destinations. So, if you have to get on a plane, there are a few things you can do to minimize the risk of
2: catching the virus. WBBM's Cisco Kodo got some tips on how to fly safely from Cindy Richards, editor-in-chief of TravelingMom.com.
4: Cindy, yeah, the numbers will be down, but there's still a lot of people who are going to go see mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, or maybe their kids for Thanksgiving.
8: Absolutely. Starting with all those college kids who are off at campus right now and they want to get home for the holidays. Now,
4: a lot of them, if I understand right, a lot of colleges are, are being pretty good about this as far as requiring students to get tested before they leave campus, hoping to keep mom and dad safe
8: you know there's a lot of testing going on and and it's all smart and there's a, there's a ton of advice from the centers for disease control and prevention so anybody who's planning to fly should certainly check the CDC site before they do anything but you know the reality is just because they left campus and got their temperature taken or had a had a test doesn't mean that by the time they've gone through the airport and on an airplane and <clears throat> and through o'hare by the time they get home to you that they haven't been exposed to something. So really the, the key is to to do the best you can while you're in transit to try and avoid, as you said, taking COVID home with you.
4: So what are some of those things, especially in the airport where some people have to wait two or three hours before they get on their plane?
8: Well, my, my biggest tip is always, especially if you're traveling with kids is you don't have to wait at the gate where your airport, where your uh, flight is leaving from. So if you're leaving from gate 12, but uh, and and you know there are however many 170 other people that are getting on that plane too. They're all crowded at gate 12, but maybe at gate 15 the flight just left and it's completely empty. So walk down there, take your Clorox wipes, clear the you know clear the uh, the armrests and um, make sure that you feel comfortable sitting in that seat, and and wait there. Just make sure you're either listening for the announcements if you're close enough or have the app on your phone. So if there's an announcement about your flight, um, you don't end up missing it because you were being so good at being distant and socially distant from everybody else.
4: What about at the check-in gate? I mean, that's once you get through it. What what do you do uh, any way that you can stay safer as you're checking in?
8: Well, I think contactless check-in is big. Um, Download download the app for your airline and check in online and use your phone as your uh, boarding pass. You don't have to touch anybody. They won't take your phone from you. Uh, you just hold it up to the light to, to work. And, and then when you go through TSA, touch as little as you can going through TSA. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I have never, ever seen anybody clean a bin at TSA. So don't put your keys and your wallet in those little buckets. Tuck them in the side of your carry-on and just run your carry-on through on the belt. Don't put it in a, um, don't put it in a bin if you can help it. So anything that you're taking off, including your jacket, your gloves, your hat, whatever, tuck it in your suitcase if you can so fewer of your possessions are out there in public. So when you're on the plane,
4: I, I always wonder, even pre-COVID, I always wonder, uh, do you turn that air vent on so that it's blowing on you, or do you not turn it on? What, what do you do with that thing?
8: Well, I think right now uh, the advice, the best advice is to turn it on full blast so it's blowing on you. So in other words, you're you're blowing the air away from you. So it's blowing on you and then away from you um, to keep the airflow um, away from you as opposed to coming to you. You know, it's um, I hardly ever do it because I'm always freezing on airplanes, but this is the time when you just want to take an extra wrap and bundle up and keep the thing blowing on you. And you know, the upside of wearing a mask is it can get hot. So you're going to be warmer on the airplane. You'll be happy to have the vent blowing on you and it'll be safer for COVID.
1: As if we didn't have enough reasons to love Dolly Parton, she's playing her part in the fight against COVID-19. Turns out the country music legend donated a million dollars to Vanderbilt University's coronavirus research team, and her donation apparently helped Moderna in finding a COVID-19 vaccine, which is showing promising results during the trial phase. The official preliminary report on the Moderna vaccine now credits the Dolly Parton COVID-19 Research Fund as one of the support.
2: I saw somebody on Twitter. Actually, a lot of people ran with this one. They said, insert vaccine for Jolene, and it won't ever get out of your head.
1: Oh, that makes sense. To the melody
2: of Jolene, but now it's vaccine. So thank you, Dolly.
1: Vaccine, vaccine. Oh,
2: National treasure. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.